Welcome to Korean True Crime with me, your host, Mimi Mizigo. Today's episode is about a massacre that occurred at the beginning of the Korean War. With some history, we will learn about what led to the war, the massacre, and what happened in the aftermath. Thank you to Vix Mack, Lala, Jake Lomo, Ben Jones, Ashley Rigby, William White, Sue VB Van Bremen, Blanca Blanca, and Gion Edwards for their support on Patreon. You are all the absolute best and I appreciate your support. If you'd like to join my patrons, you'll receive ad-free early access episodes, weekly true crime vocabulary hinting at the content of the next episode, exclusive access to vote on future episode topics, and the occasional bonus content. There are no tiers, so all patrons gain access to everything. If you'd like to support me with your love, find me on most social media sites at Korean True Crime. Video podcasts are available later on YouTube, and sources are available for free on Patreon. Today's episode contains descriptions of execution and murder done during the Korean War. Viewer discretion is advised. What was that? Seventy-two years have passed since the start of the Korean War in 1950. Although it has yet to end officially, North and South Korea came to an armistice agreement in 1953. The Korean War was fought between what we call now North and South Korea, but then were two zones on the peninsula controlled by the Soviet Union and China-allied Northern Group led by Kim Il-sung and the United States and United Nations-allied Southern Group led by Lee Sung-man. North Korea at this time had superior resources and were greatly more wealthy than their South Korean neighbors. North Korea's leader, Kim Il-sung, also called the Wedehan Surang Kim Il-sung Dangji, or Great Leader Comrade Kim Il-sung, with his name bolded always, to this day is still referred to as the Gangwagugi Yangwan Han Jusok, or Eternal President of the Republic. But he's had many ostentatious titles. North Korea, as it's commonly referred to as, is officially the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. The United Nations was overseeing all of North Korea's elections, but in 1948, the Soviet Union disregarded the UN's plans and held their own elections in their controlled zone. They established the Supreme People's Assembly, North Korea's unicameral legislature. Kim Dubong was elected as the chairman, a leader who had aided in the March 1st movement to gain independence from Japan, and amongst other communist leaders, helped establish the Workers' Party, which is the dominant political group in North Korea. However, as Kim Dubong established the Workers' Party of North Korea, the Soviet Union decided to declare Kim Il-sung the ruling government of the entire peninsula, including the UN-controlled South. Kim Il-sung wasn't yet called the great leader, but as they fought and gained firm control of the North, his infamous personality cult was already brainwashing and manipulating the people into worshipping him as if he was their savior. His first statue was erected the same year as the great leader was created. General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin, had learned through espionage sources that the USA was not prepared to enter into a war and defend Korea. Their information suggested that the United States was dealing with defense budget cuts and the atomic bombs that they did have were not designed or intended to last indefinitely. 
Stalin believed the USA President Harry Truman wouldn't jump to Korea's defense if they continued to encroach on the southern zones. North Korea would officially declare war on June 25, 1950, as they invaded across the 38th parallel with the mission to execute traitor Lee Sung-man. South Korea's leader at the time, President Lee Sung-man, was fearful of the Soviet-backed North Korean forces and the passionately dedicated Koreans that had joined the Communist Party. The war had already begun and they'd lost land north of Seoul. Time was counting down to when Soviet and North Korean forces would be on their doorstep. President Lee evacuated from Seoul, which was soon to be a battlefield, on June 27, 1950, two days after the declaration. President Lee Sung-man was as you'll learn, a very hasty man. But prior to his presidency, and much before the Korean War, Yi was heavily involved in anti-Japanese occupation groups following the First Sino-Japanese War in 1895, 55 years prior to this, when he was only 20 years old. He was arrested that year after being implicated in plotting to organize a revenge attack after Japanese agents assassinated their empress, Empress Min, the wife of King Gojong, the last king in the Joseon dynasty. Empress Min was incredibly powerful and very firm in her opposition to Japanese influence in Korea, hence why Yi and his anti-Japanese groups were plotting to seek revenge for her death. Their plans didn't work, however, and after being arrested, an American woman working as a physician in Korea helped him avoid charges. Yi Sung-man would continue his plight to resist Japanese influence, however, as he was arrested again four years later in 1899 for actually trying to get Empress Min's husband, King Gojong, removed from power, as he wasn't nearly as great of a leader as his late wife was. Political historians have suggested that his motivations were anti-Japanese, but also mostly about achieving power as soon as possible, even if that meant placing a pro-Japan politician to replace the mild King Gojong. About 20 days into his prison sentence, he attempted to escape the prison but was caught, which landed him a life sentence. He spent the rest of his time in prison translating historical war records and creating the new English-Korean dictionary that can still be used to this day. His prison sentence didn't last long, however, as he was released five years later in 1904 during the Russo-Japanese War. He had gained some fame during his time in prison and after being released, was invited to meet with U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt in an attempt to convince him to help Korea preserve their independence, as you know, was unsuccessful. Not wanting to return to Japanese-occupied Korea, he stayed in America and studied at George Washington University to get his bachelor's, went to Harvard University to get his master's, and Princeton University to get his PhD. By 1919, at age 44, he partook in the March 1st movement that helped Korea gain its independence from Japan. For the next decade, he would rise in power overseas as an acting president of the Republic of Korea. While he was impeached as the acting president over the provisional Korean government in Shanghai over misuse of power, he remained in power in South Korea. His loyalties and motivations were singular. He wanted power. He fled to America in 1939 and remained there until being allowed to return to Korea following Japan's surrender in 1945. He resumed his position as the acting president and promised a strong opposition to communism. The U.S. State Department referred to President Yi as prickly, uncompromising, and a dangerous mischief maker. By 1948, Yi was elected president with 92.3% of the vote. 
Under his presidency, he promised that the Koreans working as national police under the Japanese occupation would keep their jobs. 53% of the national police officers were men who had served during Japan occupation, supporting Japan. So at this point, a lot of his actions would be contrary to his very stern anti-Japan stance in the hopes that he would keep his position of power. Yi's desperation would lead to some of Korea's bloodiest days. Yi was incapable of accepting criticism and immediately enacted laws into his presidency that punished political dissent. Many people who spoke out against him were arrested or went missing. It didn't take long for the people to realize they had put a dictator in office. At President Yi's right hand was a man known as Yi's creature, a man as cold, unfeeling, and brutal as it gets. His name was Kim Chang-rung. His job was to detain and torture suspected communists or North Korean agents. While today's episode isn't about all of the atrocities done during President Yi's government, it's important to know that the one we're talking about today isn't the first done by President Yi, just the first one in the Korean War. Under President Yi's government, the suppression of the Jeju uprising in 1948 reported a total of 14,373 victims, but numbers could be as high as 30,000 from how many people went missing. That's about 10% of the population of the island of Jeju at the time. While this uprising had violent means on both ends, it's remembered as a shocking moment of the government suppressing protesters with unusually cruel violence. The Mungang massacre in 1949 resulted in the death of 88 unarmed citizens, including 32 children, for suspected communist planning. The war against communism and North Korean sympathy was one President Yi was not willing to lose, even if it meant killing innocent civilians and children. Prior to North Korea crossing the 38th parallel, President Yi had amassed around 30,000 alleged communists in his prisons and 300,000 suspected communist sympathizers forcibly put in re-education programs that would be called the National Rehabilitation and Guidance League. And this is where we arrive at the title of today's episode, the Daejeon Prison massacre. The National Rehabilitation and Guidance League, which is shortened to the Bodo League, was essentially a conversion therapy imprisonment for suspected communist sympathizers. These were not people who were proven to have protested, plotted, or planned anything to do with communism. They were just suspected to perhaps be involved or have gone against President Yi. The series of massacres that happened during the Korean War towards communist accused prisoners is called the Bodo League. Massacre. These happen around the same time and have the same motivations and causes, but we specifically will only be talking about Daejeon Prison. Surprisingly, the rehabilitation program itself wasn't only for people forced into it after being arrested. Farmers were asked to join the program by offering free rice and fertilizer to anyone who joined. They preyed on the impoverished farmers or out of work citizens, and many of the people who joined these meetings had absolutely no idea about the political zeitgeist in the nation because mostly they were targeting uneducated people who were easier to manipulate and they were getting a lot of people who wanted to get a fresh start in the government's eyes and thought that they could achieve this by joining these meetings. 
With 30,000 alleged communists in prison across South Korea and 300,000 signed members in the re-education programs, President Lee Sung-man was becoming more and more paranoid of the enemy hidden in their midst. President Ri's creature, Kim Chang-rong, and the officers in charge of erasing the red hidden in South Korea were at their most active during this time, hauling anyone suspected of not just communist thought but of democratic thought as well. Anyone who could threaten President East power was a threat. This is a part of Korean history that's often left forgotten, but it's important that we don't forget. The ends only justify the means for the survivors. Our two leaders' stories clash in 1950. Kim Il-sung and Lee Sung-man both came to an agreement that they would unite the Korean peninsula. However, they disagreed on which government would take control. Let's remember that Soviet Union leader Stalin had given North Korean President Kim information about the United States not being prepared for a war, and they weren't wrong. The United States refused to provide South Korea with heavy weaponry beyond what they needed to police their own lands. North Korea, however, was armed heavily by the Soviet Union. On June 25, 1950, North Korean soldiers crossed the 38th parallel with tanks and heavy artillery. Just two days later, June 27, 1950, President Lee was ready to flee the capital city of Seoul to save himself. His evacuation methods did not involve helping the people in Seoul escape, to nobody's surprise. The next morning, E ordered the explosive demolishment of the Han River Bridge that would slow the North Korean troops significantly. As the explosives were detonated, there were over 4,000 refugees evacuating the city on the bridge. Hundreds of people died, and even more were trapped north of the Han River to face North Korean torture camps. On June 20, 1950, President Lee would make an order that the government would spend decades covering up. A large-scale enemy attack is expected tomorrow morning. Punish the leftist extremists. That meant the political prisoners all over the nation. The inmates of Daejeon Prison, 90 miles south of Seoul, were now classified as threats to the nation. President Lee feared that they would rise up and join North Korean forces, so they were ordered to be executed. This included prisoners whose sentences were almost finished and detained Bodo League members who were considered rehabilitated. It didn't make any difference after the order was received. A Correctional officer who worked at Daejeon Prison testified that at first they were instructed to execute death row and life imprisonment inmates, but later would include anyone suspected of being a threat to join North Korean forces. The first victim of the communist witch hunt was Lee Gwansul, an independence activist and creative political protester. He was notably the most famous prisoner that they had, and he was aware of the fate awaiting him. He knew even before the soldiers stormed the prison and began rounding everyone up. He was separated from the other protesters that he knew and was transferred to Daejeon Prison after being sentenced to life in prison. His trial is infamously known as the Counterfeit Bill Case. Lee Gwansul's case had been ongoing while he stayed in Sodaemun Prison. He'd been there for a few years at this point. He was among nine other independence activists and pro-Japanese police officers that were accused of printing counterfeit bills. That would later be proven 
to have been entirely fabricated by the court of the U.S. military government, which, if you knew, was in the midst of their very own communist witch hunt known as the Red Scare, or McCarthyism. Of the accused was Nodoxor, an officer in charge of torture that was actually the officer that personally tortured Iguan Sul during the Japanese occupation. He had received the nickname Torture Strongman from his time being tortured for three years straight for being an independence activist, which, ironically, so was the president, Yi Seung-man. He'd even ran against President Yi Seung-man in the same election after an exceptionally brutal period of water torture. He suffered from consumptive disease and began vomiting blood. Other prisoners said he was always joking and making light of his situation. He often returned from the torture chamber and would say, huh, today they almost made me spit out my coffee. While his fame was achieved from his leadership of the independence and liberation movement, he also was a master of disguise as he was captured and escaped Japanese police for years. To some, he is considered a legend. To others, a communist enemy. On the morning of July 1st, 1950, the prisoners were forced onto trucks by soldiers and driven to Goyangol Mountain, a place that will forever be known as a tomb. Large pits had been dug into the flat land at the bottom of the mountain. The pre-dug pits were done by the residents in the area, who were mobilized to serve their country. Several pits were dug one meter and a half deep and 50 meters wide, which is approximately the length of an Olympic swimming pool if the width was a sidewalk. Three pits had been dug in five days of preparation, but eight pits would be finished by the end of the week. If you would connect the eight pits in length, it spans almost more than a kilometer, or half a mile. Iguan Sul was paraded forward as the first enemy to be executed. His hands were tied behind his back as soldiers threw him off the trucks and dragged him to the edge of the first pit. His spirits weren't down and he had his held high, even mocking the soldiers who held him, as if he was a risk of killing everyone there. A man who had never killed, a man who had endured years of electric and water torture, a man who had become a martyr for the independence movement. The prisoners at the base of the mountain knew that the war had officially been declared at this point, and they knew what was happening as they were loaded onto the trucks. Many men cried, pleaded, or resisted as they were lined up outside of the trucks to watch. But Yi Guansul's resolve as he was forced to walk towards the pit first changed the atmosphere. The transcript of the command given by President Yi's office read, Execute the inmates one by one. Lay their heads on the embarkment of the pit. The gunners should line up in groups of ten, and military commanders should announce when ready. Gunners should step on the backs, and one by one, fire at the back of the head. The orders had been given, and privates were summoned by their commanders to the prison. A prison guard at this scene recalled the moment that he could never forget. He watched as Iguan Sul was laid at the edge of the pit. Lieutenant Shim, the commander at the scene, drew attention to Iguan Sul as part of his anti-communist speech. As he finished, he asked Iguan Sul for his final words. He decided to make a joke, asking if he should shout, Long live the Republic of Korea, mockingly, a prod at President Yi's government that the re-education program wanted them to support. He wasn't willing to renounce all that he'd fought for now. So, after a quick moment of thought, he spoke again but this time in a loud voice, almost singing, as he shouted, Long live the Joseon people, as Lieutenant Shim shouted, Open fire, to the soldier stepping on his back. Their words melded together in that moment, and in the end, Yi's final words supported the Joseon dynasty, a time of resistance against foreign influence. A very strong and powerful final statement. After the bullet hit the back of his head, his body fell into the empty pit. 
His words, however, didn't faze Lieutenant Shim as he turned, wiped the blood off his spattered coat, and shouted at the men, there's a change of plans. Lay the inmates down with their heads over the pit, shoot them in the back of the head, blood and white shit will splatter over your clothes. The soldiers moved quickly as they dragged the men to the edge of the pit, kneeling them down, facing Iguansul's body below. The soldiers went back, aimed their pistols, and on Shim's command, open fire. The men's bodies went limp, and before being pushed into the pit, Lieutenant Shim walked one by one and fired a second shot into each of the men. A commander in the KBS Korean War documentary, The Longest Grave, recalled that as he walked amongst the bodies, checking for life, victims pleaded to be shot again as they were still alive. None of the killed were sentenced through the legal system, and many of the men were awaiting trial, not yet convicted of their crimes. According to Korea's law, the prisoners should have been safely moved to a new location to carry out their sentences in the war, making this incident a war crime towards their own people. The slaughter of the prisoners was covered up for decades, until 1992 when testimonies and photographs were collected from sealed records. Amongst them, soldiers reported that they turned their heads to the side and pulled their trigger. Usually in an execution, you shoot diagonally across the back of the head to avoid ricochet inside of the skull and splatter. But after the shooter stepped back, another person would come in with a machine gun and shoot them to confirm that they were dead. Then they pushed the bodies into the pit. Finally, after all of the men they had brought with them were dead, they would shoot into the pit again with the machine guns. At the scene, watching all of this were locals, including elementary students who had been forced to dig the pits. South Korea and American soldiers, as well as Korean monks, were chanting prayers to the deceased. Soldiers said that the scene felt like pigs to the slaughter. The pits were filled so full that when they finally began covering them with soil, feet were still sticking out of the mounds. In a heartbreaking testimony from a monk, he said that even as they dropped soil into the pits, they could hear the gasps and screams of men saying, please save me. Soldiers would come around and fire into the pits with M1 rifles until it was silent on the mountain. Heartbreakingly, in the pits were even young adults, barely 18, as they rolled large stones over the bodies to crush them in a last cruel method to ensure their death. The children who had aided in digging the pits also helped in burying the aftermath of the massacre. This would repeat for three weeks until July 17th. The victims were not only men with life sentences. Later, women, convicts, and prisoners with short sentences would also be brought to the pits and killed. Family members were terrified about who would be next and if their loved ones would ever return because nobody knew what was happening to the prisoners for the first few days or weeks. Many were actually told that their family members would return. But as winter approached in October 1950, just three months following the massacre of many of the prisoners in Daejeon, there were still many people remaining imprisoned at Daejeon Penitentiary when North Korean soldiers arrived. The North Korean soldiers took control, killing anyone who worked at the prison and many prisoners too, and they were even more cruel. There's a well that still stands to this day as a reminder of what happened at the prison. The brick-covered small well then was full of bodies dumped inside. Witnesses said that the bodies floated in the water and blood overflowed the top. Victims were hanged from trees, bound by their hands and ankles and thrown into the well, and even tied to wooden poles and shot at. David Miller, a British researcher in South Korea that helped make the KBS documentary about the Daejeon massacre said that the survivors witnessed two massacres by two different perpetrators. There is no such thing as a righteous massacre. 
Surviving family members recall that when they found out, they would go to the graves and try to dig out their loved ones to give them a proper burial or to find out if their family member was there. In a horrifically traumatizing experience, they said that all of the bodies were in various stages of decomposition, so legs and arms would come detached as they tried to pull them from the pits. Many people just couldn't find their loved ones. The grave would be forgotten, or covered up, until 2002, when a hurricane began unearthing these shallow graves across Korea. People had been coming forward to testify about the atrocities in the last decade, but the graves hadn't been found. Remorseful guards and soldiers came forward to apologize publicly for what they did under President Yi's command. And in 2008, the Daejeon prison tomb was finally excavated formally, leading to the discovery of 7,000 sets of remains in the area. But many are incomplete skeletons and were so intertwined, it was difficult to know what remains belonged together. The actual number of deceased varies from 1,800 to 7,000. As the remains were uncovered, bodies of children were even found in the graves. Many of the prisoners who died at Daejeon Prison were later found to have had fabricated charges, much like Lee Kwan Sul. A daughter of one of the victims said that her father was forced at gunpoint to sign a document saying he was the leader of a leftist organization that he had never heard of before. Simply, the government just needed an excuse to kill these people that they were afraid of. The events that took place were a public secret for a very long time. If anyone spoke up about or even whispered about the massacres, they could be tried as leftist sympathizers. They had to renounce their family members for the next four decades. It wasn't until the last two decades that the remains and history could finally be remembered. In 2008, apology from the then president was given and now remains are being respectfully excavated. The excavations are still continuing to this day. Prayers by various religious leaders have been given to the unidentified remains, but the mountain still is a place of tragedy. Locals have said that to this day, the smell of blood lingers in the soil and an overwhelming miasma blankets the area. Korea is an aging society, and that means a large portion of the population is over the age of 50. There are still many people in Korea who fought in, or were victimized in, the Korean War. For many of those people, they didn't know the horrors that had occurred because they were children. But for those whose parents were victimized by the war, and the massacres that occurred all over the nation, they lived with the knowledge that their nation tried to cover up the tragedy that happened to them. As of 2020, over a million Korean War veterans are still alive today, but how many victims are? Some of us live with the privilege to not know war, or betrayal, or tragedy like this. I certainly have not seen the horrors of the world firsthand, and I need to be thankful for that. But it's our duty to not forget the past and to learn and grow empathy from it. At the end of it all, in our most desperate times, are we not all human? Thank you for listening to today's episode of Korean True Crime. If you'd like to hear more, follow the show wherever you listen and be sure to leave a review. If you'd like to send me feedback, find me on social media sites at Korean True Crime. See you next time.